Hello, hello. This is the Buddhist Recovery Network Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Valentine, and this is the moment you have been waiting for. We have the magical Amy Reed joining us today to talk about her personal story in Buddhist recovery and many of the exciting things happening over at Recovery Dharma. Speaking of which, the new website, recoverydharma.org, is live, listing both Recovery Dharma and Refuge Recovery meetings. There are tons of wonderful resources on the site as well uh, as the free ebook, Recovery Dharma, which just launched its first edition this week as well, which you can either download on the website or purchase on Amazon. If this podcast gets you excited about the new program, Recovery Dharma, we'll have a big presence at this year's Buddhist Recovery Summit happening in September, which is taking place in Lacey, Washington. The cost for the summit covers lodging and three meals a day. All of your favorite Buddhist recovery teachers and authors will be there, but more importantly, your peers from around the globe from Buddhist recovery groups and, you know, individuals are coming together to share and grow together. So sign up soon for the summit, or what I like to call Buddhist Recovery Summer Camp, and check out BuddhistRecoverySummit.org to find out more information. Okay, and now let me introduce Vimala Sara and Amy Reed. podcast Amy it's wonderful to have you here in our studio and uh, you've got a great story I, I really want to initially hear how did you get from going from the 12 steps into Buddhist recovery because we're seeing more and more people turning towards Buddhist recovery what was your journey from the 12 steps into the Buddhist recovery um well I got sober in AA um, 10 years ago in Oakland, California. And at the time, um, it was really exactly what I needed. Um, And I think I got really lucky getting sober somewhere that was um, very eclectic and very progressive. And I had a incredible community of women and queer people who didn't have a very dogmatic approach to the 12 steps. And so I was able to really find my place in it. Um, and, and for me, I think it was actually really helpful to have that structure and that tradition and that kind of relationship with a sponsor to kind of tell me what to do because I was in a place where I was just done trying to figure it out for myself. Um, and so for a long time, for about five years, I, I felt really at home there. And um, I was able to kind of get what I needed out of it. Um, and then what happened was I moved to the South, which is very different. And um, I had a young child and I was in a new town. 
And I just wasn't connecting with 12 steps here the way I had back there. And um, I started to kind of drifting away from recovery and um, didn't really have much of a community. Um, and then I found, um, I think I found a flyer for a refuge recovery meeting in a coffee shop. Okay, let me and stop then, you there. Let me stop you there before you go into refuge recovery, which I want to hear all about. But let's like look at 12 steps first, because that's where you were. And you spoke about women and queer people. How would you say that women and queer people have changed the demographics or the nature of 12-step recovery? Hmm. Um, I don't know. I can just speak from my own experience about what that community gave me, but I think it was it was an ability to read the big book and to relate to the literature um, kind of outside of the the male lens, um, I guess, and to really question the context that you know the big book was created in and um, the culture that it was created in and and really approach it as um, something where we could get what we needed from it and leave the rest. And um, I mean, yeah, the reason basically. why I, the reason why I asked that question is, is because you got sober in California, in Oakland, basically in Oakland, where there's a huge queer population, huge women's population, which inevitably is going to have an influence on 12-step programs or any programs out there. And then you move to the South, where I would imagine that the queer population isn't so visible there and women and strong women aren't so visible in the same way that they are in Oakland, in California. Um, yeah, I think maybe that's part of it. Um, I think, you know, 12-step communities are very different wherever you go. And I was in one where it was the culture that I found myself in was that it was okay to question and it was okay to kind of um, interpret things in a way that made sense to you. And when I kind of came to the South, there was more of this culture of um, that kind of big book thumping, like this is the way, this is the dogma. And if you question it, then you're going to relapse and die. And that did not feel true to me. That felt... Um, incredibly shaming and fear-based and that wasn't what I wanted out of my recovery and um I went you know I tried a bunch of different meetings and I looked around and I didn't see a lot of what I wanted and I felt like kind of my spiritual path had plateaued and I wasn't getting the growth that I needed anymore I um, hear you I, I hear you and I mean at this point I just really want to acknowledge Lois Wilson she's often forgotten and Lois Wilson opened the doorway so that we as women could come into 12-step programs and also I think also opened that doorway for for queer people too but as you say I mean in, in Buddhism we talk about taking the raft as far as it will take you and it's like 12-step took you as far as it could take you you get to the south and then you see this flyer in the window for refuge recovery what happened next? Um, I I started going to meetings. Um, I had always been very drawn to Buddhism. Um, when I was in California, I went to a couple of retreats at Spirit Rock and I, you know, studied um, Kevin Griffin a little bit. And, but I never found a Sangha and I never found 
my way to like a regular practice. It was all kind of like, oh, those are nice ideas, but uh, this is my real life and I'm going to do my real life. And those ideas kind of live over there somewhere else. Um, and then when I found this, this new community, which at that point was very small, it was just a couple of meetings in Asheville. Um, I was like, wow, all of the things that make sense are all in one place. Like this community, the recovery community that I've been craving that saved my life, that is where I found so much like healing that's here. And now like this, this philosophy and this practice that like makes so much sense that I don't have to kind of twist the words around to sort of make them work for me. Um, it's, it's all here. And um, I also saw just in those rooms, like the people were a little bit funkier and they were a little bit more on my wavelength. And um, it felt like home in a way that I hadn't felt for a long time. In How do you the mean room. the people were funkier? Like, what was it? What was it that made these people look funkier? Uh, well, I think, you know, I think that, I think that Buddhist recovery kind of tends to attract more counterculture folks because it is, it's not the norm. It's not the way, um, I guess the majority of mainstream, I don't know if you could even call like mainstream people in recovery, um, find their way. Right. And so I think it, it takes like, it takes a certain kind of personality to like question that mainstream norm and go and try something new. No, I, I hear you because, you know, if you were looking for a recovery meeting, it would be 12 steps and who's going to initially look for Buddhism as a recovery program and the brilliant thing that Noah did, Noah Levine did, and also I'll include myself in this as well, is that we made recovery explicit in the Buddhist teachings mm -hmm. and that, that in itself is because we know that recovery was implicit in the Buddhist teachings but we mm -hmm. helped to make them e explicit. And so now that these teachings are explicit, what would you be saying to somebody who's in a 12-step program thinking, oh, you know, 12 steps is the only way. I'm not sure about this Buddhist recovery, about going to a refuge recovery meeting. What would you say to inspire them or encourage them to begin to consider Buddhist recovery? Um, well, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like evangelize. <laughs> I, I think like if 12 steps is working for them and they're getting everything they need, then that's great. But I think there are a lot of people who feel that just sort of something else is out there or something, something, there's just more to recovery and more to growth. Um, and I would say that, you know, to me, and I'm just speaking for myself, that I don't consider the Buddhist path as having to be a religion. It's a practice and it's a set of tools and it's, you know, sometimes a philosophy, um, but they're tools that are available to anybody, regardless of their belief or non-belief. Um, and they're practical. It's a very practical path. I would push it even more than that. I think that some people will take the Buddhist path as just tools, which is fantastic. Some people will see it as a religion, which is fantastic. And some people will actually see the Buddhist path as a way to live their life. It's really showing you how to live your life. And, you know, any 
path that you take, whether the tools or the way to live your life or religion, if that's going to work for you, that is, I think, fantastic. Mm -hmm. And that's the beautiful thing about it is that people can make it exactly what they need. And there are so many layers and so many different avenues to the practice um, that it's really, it's available to anybody at any place in their life. So Amy, that, that's great. Thank you for reminding me of that. But I want to come back to something because, you know, you're in 12 steps and we know that 12 steps has been going for a long while. And we know that people can recover purely going to 12 step meetings. So how long have you been, how long was you with Refuge Recovery? And we'll talk a bit more about why I'm saying it in the past at the moment, but how long was you in refuge recovery? And did you see people get sober, people get abstinent by purely working the refuge recovery program, purely working Noah Levine's program? Um, yeah, so I was actively involved um, for about three years. It's been about three years. And um, I did see a f like quite a few people um, start coming to meetings and get sober with that being their primary program. Um, but I will say that the, the vast majority are people who kind of go between 12 steps and Buddhist recovery. Um, I think just because it is such a new program, so many of us... Um, like probably the majority of people I know in recovery right now are people who got sober originally in 12 steps and kind of had the same experience as me of kind of reaching this point where like they wanted more um, and then finding like, oh, wow, this is the way to get deeper and more, um, but who still have that foundation in 12 steps. Um, but there are, there are quite a few people in my, in the Asheville Sangha who came in um, freshly, uh, clean and had to have gotten sober with this being their primary path. That's, that's amazing. I, I just think it's just absolutely amazing that, you know, how long has refuge recovery been around for eight, nine years? Is it eight, nine years? Um, yeah, I think that's probably about when the first meeting started getting mm -hmm. formed. The book came out five years ago. And it's 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 amazing to just hear that some people have actually found abstinence and sobriety of mind through the program of refuge recovery. I mean, that just uh, gives me goosebumps. And uh, mm -hmm. because we know, like, you can go to any city and found, find a 12-step meeting, but still it is very hard to do your whole program in Buddhist recovery because it's still new. It's, mm -hmm. it's still seedling. We're, we're still growing. And um, and so, yeah, that's just um, hats off, hat, hats off to, to Noah's program, Refuge Recovery. I think that's, that's just um, absolutely wonderful. So we know that uh, Refuge Recovery has gone through a huge change. Do you want to tell me a bit about that? Yeah, um, I'll just keep that part pretty basic because it can get complicated and that's probably not necessary or helpful. Um, but basically, um, Refuge Recovery, the nonprofit, um, is in the process of being dissolved and two new organizations are 
um, coming from that Refuge Recovery World Services, which is being led by NOAA, and then um, Recovery Dharma, which is um, kind of what came from the conflict that had been happening for the last over a year um, with disagreements between the Refuge Recovery Board of Directors and NOAA about sort of the vision and how things were being handled. Um, and so now we have two organizations and um, Recovery Dharma is trying to kind of take what, um, you know, we feel was like the, the beautiful aspects of refuge recovery and take them in another direction. And what I want listeners to, to realize that actually splits aren't necessarily unhealthy. It's in the Buddhist tradition, there have always been splits, you know, which is why we have the Mahayana, the Hinayana, Vajrayana, and all these different strands of, of, of Buddhism. And so it's something that is actually is part of the Buddhist history is split. So, you know, I just really want to see this as something as healthy rather than as something as unhealthy. But I am curious, are the two going to work together? Is, the, is it amicable or, or could you say a bit more? You know, I hope so. Um, I don't have a ton of insight on that. I think, you know, as you were saying that like splits are sometimes healthy and I really do believe that that's the truth in this case. I think that um, there were different visions and that we were holding each other back from following our visions. And now we're both free to kind of go in the direction that feel true to us and support people in a way that feels true to us. Um, and I think ultimately we have the same goals, which is to help people recover through Buddhist um, teachings and Sangha. And um, I think that, you know, we're all, we're all on this path together, whatever we call ourselves. Um, you know, we're in a, we're in a phase of a lot of transition and a lot of change and growth. And so it's hard to know, you know, where we stand but my hope is absolutely that like we are partners on this path together and that we're supporting we're all supporting the same people which is people who are trying to save their lives and that's what's important yeah i mean i just hope in the next few years that people doing their buddhist recovery they might go to a a refuge recovery world service meeting on a monday a recovery dharma meeting on a Tuesday, an eight-step recovery meeting on a Wednesday, a heart of recovery meeting on a Thursday, a mm -hmm. Buddhist, a 12-step Buddhist recovery on a Thursday or Friday. So I think it, it's really exciting. And one of the things that excites me is because unlike the 12 steps, the 12 steps has a lot of literature, a lot of literature, whereas Buddhist recovery is still new and, and the seminal text I think we have to refer to Kevin Griffin's book One Breath at a Time mm -hmm. and A Burning Desire which is Buddhism and 12 Steps but then I suppose the pure Buddhist recovery seminal text is Refuge Recovery also um, Noah's book Dharma Punks and my book with Paramavanda Grove's Eight Step Recovery which is mm -hmm. very limited and I, you know, we do use these other books in our meetings, but to hear that you, 
Recovery Dharma is putting a new book together. That really excites me. Tell me about that, because I do know that you were on the Literature Committee for Refuge Recovery once upon a time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it is pretty astounding that there isn't more out there. And I just hope that more and more um, stuff is available. And we're hoping to be a part of that. We have um, a lot of ideas about other literature that we want to create. Um, but yeah, so I was on the Literature Committee for Refuge Recovery, I think pretty much since the beginning of it um, being started. Um, I was invited by Jean Tuller, who was the executive director at the time, um, who knew we were friends and she knew that I was a professional writer. And so it was me and a few guys, and we sort of um, spent some time just trying to figure out what we wanted to do. And originally, the plan was to be for a beginner's guide, like specifically for beginners, um, to kind of supplement the refuge recovery book. Um, but then as things became more clear that um, people really wanted an alternative to the refuge book and that it was becoming very apparent that there was going to be a need for a new book, um, then we started focusing on like, okay, so let's write this book um, where we talk about recovery through Buddhist practice and let's do it in a way that is accessible and that's compassionate and that's trauma-informed and inclusive. And um, we really just tried to kind of put into that book what we wanted to, to read and what we wanted to kind of see in the Buddhist approach to recovery. And so um, it was a, actually like a very, very fast process, um, kind of alarmingly so. Um, I, I write books for a living and I, and like usually publishing is a very, very, very slow process, but we put this thing together pretty much in a few months and like rev revised it several times within a few months. And um, the timing was just pretty uncanny. Um, I don't think when we started this project that we knew how much impact it was going to have and how important this little PDF, you know, this like draft of a book was going to be um, because, you know, it got to this point where like, okay, so we're starting a new organization and we have this draft on a PDF. I guess this is going to be the book of this new organization. And um, I had no idea how much power that was going to have, but, you know, it is a draft. And um, I think that that is something that we're actually really proud of, you know, the fact that like this thing is going to be, it's going to change and it's going to morph and it's going to um, be shaped by community feedback. And this, this particular incarnation of it is just the beginning. Um, and we really want it to respond to what the community needs. And we're really listening to that. What, what's, what's different? I mean, What's what's in that book that's going to be different from what's in my book, Eight Step Recovery, or Noah's book, Refuge Recovery, or, or Dharma Punks? What, what's going to be different? Um, well, you know, I think, like, I'll just start with what's the same, which is, you know, I think we're all coming from this place of, like, how do we use the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path to recover? That's the basic question of the book, right? Um, I think that we do put a little more emphasis on the precepts 
um, than was in refuge recovery. Um, we're also really, really conscious about wanting to be more trauma informed and to have um, more of like kind of professional um, psychological input. And we did have a lot of beta readers who were reading it for that and um, were able to kind of critique what we had written and add some more just to make sure that we were really reaching people on that level. And I think that there's a lot more we can do. And we actually have people working on um, trying to discuss and how we can be more trauma-informed as an organization. Um, and I think too, for me, what was the most important thing was the tone. Um, and maybe that doesn't seem super important. You know, it's not the Dharma, it's not um, the actual practice. But for me, when I read, I want to be reached emotionally. And I want to, when I'm reading something, I want to feel like somebody is seeing me and somebody is hearing me. And so, like, I think my contribution to the book um, was just really trying to get that compassion um, as part of the language and to really um, try to create a welcoming space for people. This is, uh, there's a couple of things that's quite fascinating for me about your new book. The first thing is it's going to be anonymous. There's going to be no author attached to it. Is that correct? Yeah. And what made you decide to do that? Well, I think it, it really comes down to um, one of the fundamental differences between Recovery Dharma and Refuge Recovery World Services, which is that we don't want a centralized um, leadership and we don't want a single person being the face of who we are and a single person kind of deciding how um, things go and benefiting in any way personally. Like we really want this to be about the collective and about individuals and meetings and sanghas um, where it's really from the ground up and it's really a grassroots movement. Which makes me ask my next question because, you know, watching what's happened with refuge recovery and splitting into refuge recovery world service and recovery dharma, I'm left with the question, do I need to find, you know, set up a, an organization, an eight-step recovery organization? And then I think, no, because then it becomes personality driven because I'd actually say that the eight-step recovery isn't personality driven. People set up meetings. There's, you know, lots of people don't even know who Valerie Mason John is and or Paramount Van der Groves is. And actually, it's very grassroots. And I'm thinking, do I need to have an organization? It's a question. Do I need to make eight step recovery into an organization? Hmm. You know, I don't know. But I think I think what made us realize that we did make need to make an organization and it was actually, you know, I think as things were kind of coming to a close as far as like um, the board of directors realizing that we were just going to kind of let go of the struggle, um, you know, it, it did come up like, hey, maybe we just let everything go and maybe we just like um, let refuge recovery become what it is and just, you know, let it go and accept that. But then there were you know, the louder voice was like, well, actually, that would be a disservice to the people who have 
you know, really built this infrastructure and created this global community who want to stay connected and who want to create a, a global Sangha and be part of that conversation. And so it, I think in, in this case, it wasn't about creating an organization. It was about supporting an organization that was already there because almost everybody who's a part of Recovery Dharma at this point had been a part of Refuge Recovery and had been a part of building that program and building their local sanghas. And, and so that infrastructure was already there. And so we just wanted to create something to support that and to, um, to be a resource and to, you know, not, not like do anything from the top down, but just be a space to like, for everybody to congregate and to support what people are already doing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. The other question that I had was this thing about being trauma-informed because we know that everybody who has addictions has trauma, but not everybody who has trauma has addictions. But when you say you want it to be more trauma-informed, I my ears prick up and think, well, are you going to have specialists are you going to actually have therapists actually running meetings because I mean I'm trained in trauma I'm a compassionate inquiry practitioner trained by Dr Gabor Mate who's you know one of the leading experts in trauma and and addiction and I just when you say it's going to be more trauma informed I think that's that's great on one level but how are you going to manage that in the room with meetings I mean even in Buddhist centers, sometimes we have people come and they have psychotic breaks. And, mm-hmm. you know, how do we handle that? We, you know, the, the average person isn't equipped to handle that. So mm-hmm. the fact that you're going to be explicit, because I think it's always been implicit that recovery is trauma informed, but you're wanting to make that explicit. How is your organization going to work with that? Um, well, we'll we're certainly not going to have therapists being leading meetings because that would go against the whole being peer led. Um, But I think what I think what we're really trying to do is to make sure that the literature is trauma informed. And that's kind of the first step. And then we have, um, we have a, a circle of volunteers that are starting to get organized. And they're just kind of brainstorming, really, Um, how are we going to do this? How are how are we going to create a culture of being trauma informed? And, you know, we've, you know, this organization has existed now for three weeks. (laughs) So um, we're at the beginning stages, and we don't have easy answers for that. But um, I think we've started by, you know, in the in the book, we have a section on, on trauma and attachment injury, and how that can affect our practice. And um, we have some trauma informed language around meditation. um, Because I don't know, but for me personally, when I started meditating, I had a panic panic attack and I had to Mm. like run out of the center because I focusing on my breath felt very, very unsafe. And um, nobody told me that that was okay. And I had a lot of shame around that. And so it's stuff like that, like just giving, like having this permission being implicit that like you don't have to do this the same way and that there are adaptations um, based on where you are. And like, 
really trying to like create this safe container for meeting people exactly where they are. That That's fantastic um, to hear that because it's something that I'm been writing about in my in my new book I have a a new book coming out adding to the canon of recovery books but it's more from a mindfulness uh, perspective and you know I work in a mindfulness field I have a mindfulness-based addiction recovery program and one of the things that I'm really aware of is that the one of the seminal teachings is the body scan and it can be the most activating thing that you can give somebody who's in, mm-hmm. in recovery and actually we need to begin looking at that you know how how do we change that so that's really great to hear that you you are doing that yeah I mean it sounds it sounds really exciting I think the next question I have to ask you is what's a safeguarding we all have to think about safeguarding whether it's eight step recovery Refuge Recovery, World Service, Recovery Dharma, or any Buddhist recovery, what's the safeguarding? Because we know even in the 12-step communities, there is a lot of um, predatory stuff that can go on. There can be uh, positional power, uh, positional power around gender that can go on, uh, a misuse of power, uh, abuse, etc., What's the safeguarding that you are going to begin to implement to to make your meetings safe? Mm. That's a really good question. And I think it's something that's um, really, really important to a lot of the people who are kind of behind the scenes making this happen. And, you know, like anything that we are going to try to do, we really want to get the community involved in figuring this out. And, um, you know, I think something that helps just on kind of like a, a higher level thing is that we don't have any one person in charge. We don't have any, you know, one person with power. Um, and so that hopefully is a safeguard in itself. Um, we are, you know, at work, um, hard at work on trying to figure out how to have democratically elected uh, board of directors. Um, so that's one thing that's going to like help with the power dynamic and make sure that things are done democratically. Um, as far as like at the meeting level, that's a really good question. And I think that probably something that will be in the works at some point is to really like create a safety statement and to, you know, have some something in writing, either in our guiding principles, in some sort of literature that um, really shows our commitment to creating safe spaces and that lays out some sort of um, hopes. I I don't want to say expectations because this is a tricky thing, right? We don't want this to be a top-down thing, right? Where we're telling people how to run their meetings. And at the same time as an organization, we're responsible for creating resources and um, and caring for our community. So, you know, I don't think this has an easy answer. And like I said, this is an organization that's three weeks old. So um, it's, it's something we're ex- gonna explore and it's something that like our hearts are really in. And, you know, I think that that's something that like all of the people who are kind of on the ground making this happen 
it's a priority that we all have. And I'm excited to see how the community can get involved in making this happen. You remind me that this organization is three weeks old and we know that there was a historic gathering in Chicago and uh, you were one of the speakers side by side with Noah. What was that? What was that like for you? Oh, um, honestly, I was convinced I was going to throw up in the middle of it. <laughs> I was incredibly nervous. Um, it was a very strange thing to be the person who was supposed to kind of be the voice of this new organization um, and be really the first that a lot of people were going to hear about it. Um, and it was a big responsibility and I took it very seriously. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was a very surreal experience. Um, I had actually not really ever spent any time with Noah before. I think I met him briefly at a, a regional refuge conference, but I didn't have any relationship with him at all. And so it was a very strange thing to be in this in this situation where we were put in this position of like having a very specific kind of relationship with each other, um, very publicly. And, um, so yeah, I'm st I think I'm still processing the whole experience. Um, yeah, but it, it, um, I think it made sense that that I was the person to speak because I had worked on the book and the book was such an important part of what we were offering. And also because I was a new board member. Um, and so I still had a lot of energy towards like creating something um, where I think a lot of the kind of the, the original board members had been so kind of bogged down by just trying to protect refuge recovery for their tenure on the board um, that, you know, I think the person to kind of present this new offering, be somebody who had some energy and some hope and some um, vitality um, towards creating this new thing. Some people call recovery Dharma controversial. Why is that? Um, I guess because, you know, to use language that Refuge Recovery World Services is using, uh, that we're a breakaway group somehow. Um, but I think that we kind of, we kind of own that, you know, we are a breakaway group. We, we're people who, we had a vision for Refuge Recovery and, um, and Noah and the current leadership of Refuge Recovery World Services had a very different vision. And, um, you know, we feel it's important to, you know, support the community and the Sangha that we all wanted to see and to take what we gave to refuge recovery and put it towards this new thing um, to support the work that's already been happening. How many meetings do you have? Um, at, I, I have not, I don't have the exact numbers, but at this point, I think it's around 170 or 180. Mm -hmm. um, it's fantastic. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's really exciting. Like people, people are really enthusiastic and there's this feeling like everyone's just been waiting on the edge of their seats for something to happen. And then when it finally did, it was just this fast, fast transition. And honestly, like none of us were prepared. I think I like, I think like the kind of core group of people on the transition team sort of assumed this was going to be a very slow drawn out process. And we'd just sort of gradually get people being interested, but it's been an explosion and there's already just this huge community that is just intact and already supporting each other and already connecting and all of these groups of volunteers working on different things and just the spirit of like people wanting to contribute and people being so enthusiastic and there's so much energy and it's it's like it's the feeling that I was just looking for for a long time in refuge just a feeling of community and hope and support and kindness and um it's pretty amazing what's been accomplished in the last three weeks. And when are we going to see the hard copy of the book? We are at work um, to get that out, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Don't quote me out that, that, you know, there might be some, something that gets in the way, but that's our um, primary goal. Um, like I said, we had kind of assumed things were going to be really slow. And so our idea was, okay, people are going to have this PDF. Maybe they'll print out copies at Kinko's or something. Um, and we were going to work on revising it um, based on getting some community feedback. But the way it's looking right now is that people need a book now. And a lot of people need a book right now. And um, we can't wait for a revision. And so we're going we're gonna to just you know do a, a little tidying of the manuscript and then get it out in book form and then really try to be intentional and mindful about the revision um, and give the community time to give feedback. And so that when we do put out the revision, it's um, really, really solid and really takes in as much feedback as we possibly can. Um, and then Great. We also so it would be like a first. Oh, sorry. Carry on. Oh, just I was just going to say that we also have like so many ideas for additional literature to supplement it. Like I'm really passionate about getting some kind of a beginner's guide together because I know that um, sometimes, you know, the Dharma isn't super accessible. And um, we tried to make this book as accessible as possible. But, um, you know, I think it would be really helpful to get something that's just really specifically geared towards beginners. And um, like, what does it actually take in those first, you know, few months of recovery and how do you start meditating when you've never meditated before and especially if you're, you know you're dealing with trauma or you're dealing with mental health issues like what are some adaptations we can do um stuff like that you know i know that you are a mother and i just want to know what's it like being a parent and in recovery um parenting is definitely the part of my life where I get to practice the most and I often don't do that well. Um, you know, I, I think that our like kids bring out um, the very best and the very worst, you know, and um, I find myself able to have incredible love and compassion, but then I also can find myself being incredibly 
reactive and um, triggered and just kind of these deep sort of unskillful patterns emerging time and time again. And so um, it's hard, you know, I think, um, I think that's definitely a part of my life where I have a lot of room to grow and how to kind of mindfully um, respond to not getting my way <laughs> because, you know, these little people have their own um, lives and their own agendas. And I am somebody who finds a lot of comfort in being in control or the illusion of being in control. And so having a little six-year-old constantly being remind, reminding me how little I am in control um, is quite an opportunity for practice um, for me. Do, and, you have, yeah. do you have help or are you a single parent? I have a partner and okay. an excellent partner and an excellent parent. But, um, but even then, you know, you can have all the help in the world, but these little humans still, I don't know, have a way of reaching into like the deepest, darkest part of you and showing it like straight in your face. Um, so, and how yeah. does Buddhism, how does Buddhism impact your parenting? Oh, you know what? I think the most profound thing for me is kind of being able to see clearly a lot of the patterns that I inherited from my family and that they inherited from their families and being able to make a conscious choice to try to um, do it differently. Um, and so I, I was raised where, you know, feelings were not safe, feelings were not really um, allowed. And, and so I try to be really, really conscious about making sure my daughter always knows that she has rights to her feelings and rights to her needs and desires and that she has a voice. Um, sometimes I don't necessarily want to hear that voice, um, but I, you know, in those moments, I have to remind myself, like, no, it is so much better that she's speaking out rather than, like, pushing this stuff in and learning how to not feel and not speak. Thank you. And just one last question. I, do you define as a Buddhist or what, what's, do you define as anything like you do this Buddhist recovery? And I know that some people who do Buddhist recovery wouldn't define as being a Buddhist, but some do. Both Noah and I are, are Buddhist practitioners and have been, you know, teachers who have been empowered to teach. Like, yeah, do you define as a Buddhist? I define myself as someone who practices Buddhism and as someone who is in recovery. Hmm. And what I does think that I mean? Probably, I think that it, I think like just those particular phrasings um, imply an action rather than a label. Um, recovery is something that I do and Buddhism is something that I do. It's not just... Um, a word that I attach to myself, but I guess, you know, in just for practical purposes, I would call myself a Buddhist. Um, but I like, I like the words of somebody who practices it because I do believe that more than anything, it is a practice. It's not just something to kind of think about and a label to put on myself. 
Yeah, Buddhism is a practice, and as we know, there's no such thing as a Buddhist. <laughs> so, yeah, it is about, it is a practice. How can we wake up along the path and keep on waking up and keep on waking up? I, 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 I have so much gratitude for Buddhism coming into my life in my 20s, and uh, it's, it's, it's my life. You know, the teachings are my life. That's the, the teachings point me to the truth moment by moment and remind me of the truth and remind me of my mistakes. I, I, I'm somebody who can say I got my whole recovery in the rooms of Buddhism. Yeah. I never went to 12 step meetings. I, 12 step meetings didn't welcome me that I wasn't reflected in 12 step meetings. And I did it quietly in the rooms of meditation. Yeah. Meditation and, and therapy, of course. And, and I would say later in life when I moved to Canada and I didn't have my Buddhist community around me, and what was I going to do? And my partner had been in the rooms of 12 steps for then maybe 16, 17 years. I just thought, well, okay, it's time for me to try a 12-step program. And I would say that it did save my life because I think if I hadn't had the 12-step program, I would have relapsed big time. But it kept me sane. It kept me abstinent. It kept me sober. But, you know, that recovery I did in those early days was in the rooms of meditation, in the rooms of hearing Dharma talks and just applying the the dharma it was my therapy it was my way out it was my way out to liberation and freedom mm -hmm. that's beautiful so will we see some of you at the international buddhist recovery summit um i think i think that a few are going i can't make it but i think there's going to be a couple of people there, but I'm not sure. That would be that 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 would be great. And any opportunity of having the books and free books to give out to people at the uh, at oh, the summit. That is a really good idea. Yes, mm, we have. You know, we, we will have swag bags, so it'd be great to put in a free copy of the book for everybody yeah. to have a copy. Let's talk about that after. That's a very exciting mm. idea. <laughs> okay, well, you know, just uh, well done. It's been a, a delight speaking to you. I look forward to seeing Recovery Dharma flourish. It's fantastic. I think we are all part of the recovery tribe, and I hope that eight-step recovery can work harmoniously with both recovery dharma and refuge recovery worldwide services too i mean we're all as you say we, we all want the same thing <laughs> we all want the same thing we want to liberate people from the hell realm of addiction yeah that's what we want to do it's just and it's we so all exciting. know it's so exciting say again oh i was just i just gonna say that it's just so exciting to just have more resources and that we're all, you know, creating this together and we all have a slightly different approach, but it's all for the same purpose. And I love this idea that it's, that we're, we're just together in this, that it's a community effort. The more, definitely the more, the merrier. So yeah. 
and and more resources. I mean, that's been my thing about, okay, we need more resources. What's that going to look like? So I think it's fantastic. I think, you know, um, I look forward to seeing more and just watching Recovery Dharma flourish. So well done. Yeah, and thank, thank you, you too for all that you have done for recovery and Buddhist approach to recovery. Um, it's an inspiration and it's an honor to be doing this work alongside you. Yeah, it's yeah, it, it's we're all we're all bodhisattvas. <laughs> every every single one of us, we're all bodhisattvas, and and we're human beings, and you know we human beings, and we have to be aware of that that we are also in recovery, too. You know, it's not like we are recovered. It's something that I have to remember. I have to work my program. I am in recovery, and I have to work a strong program too. Thank you for listening. If you've been moved by the conversation today or any of the previous episodes and would like to offer Donna or donation, I'll post a link in the description of the podcast as well as other links that I've mentioned today. The Buddhist Recovery Network is completely volunteer-run. No one's getting paid. Currently, we are raising donations to offer full scholarships for those that want to attend but cannot afford the Buddhist Recovery Summit in September. So please, if you feel moved, check out BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash donate. And if you want to attend the summit this September, visit BuddhistRecoverySummit.org. To close us out, I'll read The Dedication of Merit from the new book, Recovery Dharma. Refuge does not arise in a particular place, but in the space within the goodness of our hearts. When this space is imbued with wisdom, respect, and love, we call it Sangha. We hope that the pain of addiction, trauma, and feeling apart actually leads us back towards the heart and that we might understand compassion, wisdom, and change ever more deeply. As we have learned from practice, great pain does not erase goodness, but in fact informs it. May we make the best use of our practice and whatever freedom arises from our efforts here today, may this be a cause and condition for less suffering and more safety in our world. <laughs>